This morning's scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filled up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he may powerfully work within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. This is our last passage that addresses learning Christ as a kind of antidote to subtly deceptive half-truths and sort of semi-spiritual sayings that creep in to our philosophies, to our approaches to life. So we spent two weeks learning Christ from Colossians 1, 15-20. We learned the source, if you will. We learned then good news from the source. Most recently, we talked about being removed from the source. Can my faith fall apart? And finally this morning, we're going to talk about revealing your source. Paul talks about how he's taken what he has learned and then imparted it to others. And when reading and and meditating on this passage this last week, two questions surfaced, which hopefully this passage will, I think, address for us this morning. The first is this, can you love someone, truly love them without really knowing them? And Paul directly addresses this question here this morning, where it's been most of our time With this question. The second question is this Can you love too much? We will get to this, Lord willing. We'll see. All right, so to help me answer both of these questions or or address both these questions in the affirmative, I want to tell you a quick story. It was Christmas 2005 when I realized that airline stewards or stewardesses are revealers of great mysteries. It's Katie Mason and I. Uh, we were returning for San Diego for, um, for Christmas, where we were living, back to Tallahassee, Florida. And it was a tiring to so cross-national trip. And when you fly with a baby or one-year-old, how many of you have flown with a baby or one-year-old? Not that you were sitting near one. Okay. All right. <clears throat> when you fly with a baby or one-year-old, you learn a few things. You learn contentment. You learn hope. You learn fear. Uh, you're, you, you, you become content that you will receive looks, 
glares, stink eyes, <laughs> more than you received in your worst nightmares. All right, that will happen. Uh, you have the hope for the highest possible amount of grandmothers on that flight. <laughs> that is the hope. Because if you get on a flight and there are lots of grandmothers, they're the only ones. You'll be like, oh, can I help? It's true, they have pity on you, I love it. But, um, but above all, you fear multiple diaper changes. On this particular trip, we first changed Mason's diaper at our seats. Thankfully, it was of the uh, frontal liquid sort. All right, I just say that. So we were okay at this point. But the stewardess approached us to tell us of the first great mystery, which was that changing a kid's diaper at our seats is against plain regulations. And I said, I was kind of, you know, I was frustrated. So I said, well, which is less regular? Changing his diaper here or me taking him somewhere as he flails pantless? <laughs> right? which, which is less regular? All right, now, at that point, that hurt my cause, and she was more insistent that we not change his diaper there. Just our luck, 30 minutes later, Mason drops Hiroshima. All right, right in the middle of some animated feature. And uh, what do you do? I'm thinking at this point the flight crew might just pool their resources together and force him into a, you know, potty training boot camp. <laughs> well, thankfully a heroic steward came to the rescue to reveal another great mystery. He informs us that the laboratory has a diaper changer. Right, which I did not know and would not have guessed. I mean, have you seen airline laboratories? Right, have you been in one of these? I mean, I've seen coffins bigger than these things, right? And some that smell better, too, by the way. And for a full 60 seconds, he walks me into this. We're sitting there in this laboratory together. For 60 seconds, proceeds to give me specific instructions on how to operate this diaper changer. Sure enough, it's about, you know, like a foot and a half wide by two and a half feet long, trying to fit your child somehow on this. And he was funny. He said, if, if you experience turbulence, just hold everything over the commode. <laughs> All right. Sounds good to me. <laughs> I was very thankful for the steward, uh, this revealer of great mysteries. I told him, I appreciate you so much. I think I love you. And he deflected this praise slash come on and said, uh, don't love me. It's a funny guy. Don't love me. Love Delta's roomy laboratories. I said, okay. <laughs> well, and I realized, hey, this guy, he really was just doing a steward's job, right? A steward's job description, which is to represent the airline, represent the airline by revealing and guiding passengers to its various amenities, right? The, the little pillows with leftover hair grease on them, uh, the extra copy of Sky Mall magazine, and of course, how to operate all the features of an airline laboratory. A steward's job description is to reveal and point out what we're searching for, even when we don't know that for which we're searching. Like the Apostle Paul, we are stewards of what can only be described as not only a treasure, but a mystery. Something for which people don't know they're looking, but they are. So he called himself a steward of mystery. For years, mankind 
has searched to understand how he, a finite, faulty being, small being, could know and relate to an infinite, awesome, divine being. And that's a true mystery. Then, and for many still now. And it was revealed when God became man. And a perfect man. And then offered His perfection to imperfect people when He died the death that their imperfection deserved. And by trusting this God-man, you can have Him, via the Holy Spirit, live inside of you. Many aren't aware of this mystery, and for those who are, we sort of grow numb to its grandeur, to its awesomeness, God inside of us. So our divinely appointed goal in any relationship, whether it be to someone we hardly know, or to someone we know all too well, is to reveal the source, Christ in you. Another way to put it, which is our sermon in a nutshell this morning, no matter the relationship, it's more important to reveal your source than yourself. No matter the relationship, it's more important to reveal your source than yourself. And we talk, and rightly so, about the about vulnerability, because it's important to strip down and reveal yourself. Uh, but if you manage to do that without revealing your source, if you're vulnerable and show who you are without revealing your source, suddenly you've become a poor steward. And we're going to look at how to be a good steward, how to reveal our source this morning. All right, we're going to start with this question, which I mentioned in the beginning. Can you love someone without really knowing them? As I read this passage before, as this question came to mind because a couple with whom I once met caused me to consider to what degree can you really love someone without knowing them? Without knowing them with any sort of depth and you got to understand, I get to, meet, I get to meet a lot of people. I get to meet with a lot of people. And, you know, I think over time, I'm trying to grow and have sort of a general goal of when I meet with someone, 50% of it about should be listening. All right, 40% of it encouragement. But then there's that 10% that's often the hard stuff. Okay, the confrontation, a hard truth. Something that someone needs to hear, but usually doesn't want to. Now, for some of you who I've met with, you're like, Man, I feel like that's 80% of what you talk about <laughs> is the hard stuff. Well, really, that's just what we tend to remember, right? The stuff we don't want to hear. I know that's true for myself. This kind of mix, I mean, I don't mean these exact percentages, but this kind of mix is not just applicable for pastors, but for all of us who claim to have Christ in us. Paul himself says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 this, Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. So there's this sort of encouragement, this taking care of, being tender with. That's most of it. But then there's this confrontation warning piece that's hard. And anywho, while I was with this couple, and I was by no means super close with this couple, 
I, I had met with them before, I had served alongside them, and I was at a point of interacting with them where I needed to confront them with some hard truth. And it was not received well. And, you know, this made me just sad. You know, I, more than anything, this makes me sad. And I repeated, you know, I, I really say this out of love and concern. I'm not, you know, I have my own struggles. And after saying that, they turned to me and said, really? Because it seems like you'd actually need to know us to care about us. <laughs> you know, shot through the heart, right? And, and it hurt. This is part of my job description, though, really. And at this point, I didn't really know how to respond, and, and largely because I pondered the veracity, the truthiness of that statement. After all, true love, true grace that loves someone with all their warts, with all their defects, means knowing all their warts and all their defects. Right? You've got to know the person. That's when you can show them more grace and love and tenderness. And so I was struggling with this question. Man, this is really loving. And that's when the Apostle Paul, and I turn to this passage, really answered this for me. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. Keep your Bibles open. You're going to need them. For I want you to know, Colossians, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. What we see here is genuine love, right? If nothing else, if the Bible, God's Word is true, it's genuine love. Struggle. For you, hearts, encouraged, knit together, love. But in doing so, Paul also reminds us of his circumstances. If you recall, Paul is in a Roman prison when he writes the Colossians. And so, he is unable to visit them. He can't just go out for a rendezvous, a stop by, a telechat, alright, anything like that. And, this is one of only two churches Paul writes that he has never visited. So, except for the less than maybe 10% who've traveled to go see Paul, maybe to go hear him speak, to hear the Jesus Saves tour of the Apostle Paul, except for those people, these are people whom Paul has really never met face to face. As he says there in verse 1. Like Paul, we've experienced a certain level of love or at least fondness for people that we don't know intimately. That we don't know in depth. Right? Consider that when you kind of got to know someone a little bit, but due to life circumstances, you likely won't get to know them personally or any more in depth. Right? That happens all the time on an island like ours. But also, it might be someone who works with you on a, on a project temporarily. It could be a local neighbor who you're friendly with and see often, but you know, time is limited and you've got to make choices and you don't share much in common. Happens a lot for those of us with kids, right? And, and, and I want to make this disclaimer. I love having kids. I mean, but they become your primary social network. I, I love hauling out of the minivan with, you know, the, it's the three amigos and a amiga. It's great. But, okay, having said this, it uh, happens a lot to, with kids. You meet someone, you realize I have limited time. And saw this happen the other night with Katie and I's friend, uh, Kelly Campos. It happened during movie night. We had our church movie night here, and Kelly has two kids, she and Omar, and Kelly let me share this, by the way. 
uh, we were playing, I was playing a game in the back with some dudes, and between turns, I observed Kelly at another table laughing and having a good time with a bunch of young gals who don't have kids. And it was just interesting to observe, because, you know, she was just, she was reliving the glory days, right? <laughs> Relishing the time with ladies, because she knew, right, that, that this might be the only time she had with them. Due to her circumstances, she just had limited amount of people that she can get to know in depth. But our church is to the size where you really won't know half the people here well. It's not possible. So how can you still love such people? Well, in this passage, Paul demonstrates four ways to love people that he does not know personally. Maybe you never thought of this. Honestly, I had really not thought of this before, but but this is what Paul tackles here. So he's got, number one, suffering for their sake. Number two, he speaks wisdom and Christ for their growth. Three, he prays. Four, intentional follow-up. We're going to look at each of these. And as we do, guys, I want each of us to be thinking about how we might, as individuals, love those that we may never know well. How can we love people in the church even if we never know them on this intimate, personal level. First thing, Paul suffers for their sake. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Colossians. I've never, never met these people, remember. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. All right. Uh, asked this the other day, and I got a sort of, whoa, Slow your roll, pastor. What does this mean? Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Does that mean that Jesus' afflictions, his, his substitutionary death on the cross, wasn't enough to save us from death and to eternal life? I mean, did Paul, do we have to do more to make sure this happens and that we can be saved? That's not what this means. That would not only contradict the central theme of this letter, but of the entire New Testament. Uh, i got to say first, uh, this verse has been under interpretive debate since like the 4th century A.D., so it's unlikely we're going to make history this morning, all right, that we're just going to publish something, we're going to say it here, and you know, it's going to be in journals and people are going to read it. But, however, having studied this, I think the most convincing understanding seems to be in relation to this Follow with me here. This Jewish understanding of the end times in which a certain amount of tribulation or affliction would be endured before the Messiah would come. Alright, so that was the Jewish understanding. A certain amount of suffering and affliction would be endured mostly by God's people before the Messiah would come. It was often called the woes of the Messiah or the birth pangs of the Messiah. Of course, Christ, we realize, is the Messiah. It gives a whole new slant on this. So Jesus seems to speak, though, to this historical Jewish idea when he talks about his return in Matthew 24. I'm going to read this quickly, Matthew 24, 5-13. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they're going to lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed for these must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes, various places. All these are but 
the beginning of birth pains. Christ is specifically referring to this Jewish understanding of what's going to happen before the Messiah returns. He goes on to say this, they will deliver you up to tribulation, afflictions, right? And put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. This is suffering, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what Paul is saying here is that there are still these, after Christ has died and rose from the dead, completely sufficient for our salvation, there are still these deficiencies of affliction that must be endured until the unknown amount is reached and Jesus returns. All right, this is complicated. Uh, I just brought a very simple way to think of this. All right, think about this cup. And at the top of this cup, that's when Jesus is going to return. Okay? And so each time... Some, as a Christian suffers for the name of Christ and for other people, you know, it adds more. All right? But it's like an opaque cup because we don't know when it's going to get to the top. Right? You don't know when that's going to happen, but Paul is confident he is, by suffering, Christ is about to become more tangible, more real in our lives because he's going to return to be with us forever. You don't know, though, when it's going to happen, right? For instance, I'm putting this in the cup. You may think it's close to empty. No. It was close to full. All right? That's not my prediction about Jesus' return, by the way. All right? I'm not making like a claim there. But that's the idea. When these things happen, these tribulations, these sufferings go to the full measure, in God's timing, Christ will return. And as Christians, we are all called to respond to Christ's affliction for us by joyfully enduring such affliction. Paul says it this way, Romans 8, 17. We are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. So Paul is saying, look, I get to be part of this process. Suffering for Christ, for others, until the full measure is met and Jesus returns. In other words, there's a sense in which I am suffering so Jesus might speedily be more real be more tangible, be more present in your life. That's what we all hope for. How might we suffer for people we don't know well so Jesus becomes more real, more tangible, more present for them? Here's one way. Good, good, good time to take notes here. Take in the heat whenever possible. When someone, you're just around people, and this happens a lot, I know with guys especially, but actually... Actually, women as well. It can be, can be, well, I better not make too many gender comments. When, so, when someone is being teased, mocked, uh, gossiped about, deflect the attention either to your own weakness or, if possible, to even how you're worse. Right? When, when a young Timothy was feeling the heat as a young pastor in Ephesus for being young, for being inexperienced, for being unqualified, Paul makes sure he reminds Timothy, hey man, I am the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. So don't worry. You're doing better than I am. Take the heat. Someone did this for me. I remember I just started out as a furniture salesman. I liked it actually. And, and 
it, what happened was, I just started out, if you worked with someone else's customer, say they'd come in there before and looked at furniture and worked with someone else, and if you worked with someone else's customer and closed the deal, you would split the commission with them, right? How much you made off of the deal. I thought a customer was new, and I was wet behind the ears just there, but turns out it was an associate's customer who wasn't working that day, and I was still fuzzy on how it all worked, and I was new, and I took the commission for myself, and oh, it was brutal. The guy got very angry, and it was just awful. And one guy, Dan, the only Christian with whom I worked among like 40 people, he took the blame. I mean, he said, you know, I was with him that day, and he asked if I knew this customer, and I, I should have told him the policy. You know what? It's really my fault. I've worked here for six years. I mean, and that coworker, I mean, chewed him out. What an example of, of Christ, of his source and love to me. It drew me closer to Christ, even though I knew him. Another way is showing mercy when it costs you. Showing mercy when you can suffering for others. Volunteers at Georgetown Primary, our outreach, uh, showing the love of Christ to many you don't know well and walk away feeling less than appreciated oftentimes, by, by children who don't yet know the importance of an adult figure in their life who loves them, and they won't realize it until later. And so you walk away feeling unappreciated. Spending time, energy, money, hydration in search of a man gone missing whose family and fiancé you've never met. Many of you guys did that this week, or the last few weeks. Second way we can love people Paul mentions that we don't know well is speak wisdom and Christ for their growth. Look with me in chapter 1, verses 28 through 29, where Paul says this Him is Christ we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Now, if you didn't have your life verse antennae, like perk up just then, all right, perk it up. All right, we're going to look at this. Listen again. All right, this is a great goal for life because Paul says, for this thing I toil every day, every hour I toil, and, and I ask for Christ's energy to powerfully work within me. It's for this. Christ proclaiming. Proclaiming Christ. Warning people, teaching people, so we may present them mature in Christ, complete in Christ, on the day of his return or when we go to be with him. What a great couple of verses here. And how might we speak wisdom and Christ to people we don't know well? That's hard, isn't it? We talked about the, that this week in our community group. That we live in a culture sort of overrun by communication. People are just always talking. And I feel a little sheepish saying that because I'm like giving a sermon right now. But God told me to. All right, it's, it's in here, so. All right, but people just offer advice, right, nonstop. And, and, and then, on the other hand, so few people bother to ever ask for it. And it's sort of this vicious cycle. No one wants it. Everyone gives it. One of my favorite poems, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, by a guy written by T.S. Eliot. I just love this line. I want to say it. He says, Where shall the world be found? Where shall the word resound? 
not here. There is not enough silence. You may be a person who just offers up noise when there's a moment of silence. Maybe you get nervous. Maybe you need a friend to nudge you right now and just be honest with you and tell you the truth and be lovingly truthful with you. But the irony is, if you're such a person, you will rarely be heard. If that's your habit, you'll rarely be heard. Make your words count. People who you may not even know well will listen to you. Also, you can do this when no one else has the guts to be honest with someone. People, yes, even Christians, will whisper, will mumble, will chuckle. A few will lovingly tell the person they're chuckling about the truth. Be the person who loves someone else with the truth. Be that person. Paul warns and teaches 2,040 words to people he's never met. Right here. 2,040 words to people he's never met. We can be bold and say about 20. 10. 5. By the way, you ever notice how much of the time people are more willing to listen to someone they're not as close to? I'm not saying that's right or that's healthy, but if you're in the position, I'm not knowing someone well, but God puts something on your heart to say, you're actually in sometimes a more advantageous position for someone to hear it. Something to think about. Someone's too close to you, it's hard to hear. Also, you can remind them of what I call good news headlines. When I open my web browser, maybe when you open yours, I see news headlines. That's one of the first things that comes up, right? You obviously see a picture this morning. It was like the one-year anniversary of the uh, Japanese uh, tsunami. and just wanted to keep those people in prayer. That is a much more effective way of grabbing my attention than opening my browser and it goes to a full article, right? You know, with like footnotes and quotes and these sorts of things, right? I mean, if I see that, I'm quickly, you know, I'm clicking somewhere else. We don't need to feel pressured to remind someone of the four spiritual laws, to remind them of the good news in full every time we see them, right? Look, man, remember God's holy. Now you've fallen short of that holiness and you're sinful. But if you rely on Jesus in this way, you, know, you don't need to necessarily do that. Give them the headlines. Right? Remind them of a blessing they didn't earn. Uh, remind them of a church family to which they have access because Jesus has given them access to God. One simple way I try to, to do this is when people ask me how I'm doing. Hey, how are you doing? I say, better than I deserve. It's just a simple reminder. And actually, it's a reminder to me, too, of, man, I, I don't deserve anything. Everything I have is a gift of Jesus. Simple little good news headlines to remind people of. One last way, through notes. Spoken words are great, all right, but it's hard to spout out Psalm 23 when someone's going out the door. Right? Like, you know, you know someone's struggling, they're walking out the door. The Lord is my shepherd. You shall not want. Right? That doesn't work well. It makes you seem desperate. You really want to be heard. But a note on paper through, through an email allows the recipient to really reflect on, chew on, consider God's word and what's written down. Thirdly, Paul loves people he doesn't know by praying for them. Look at me in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for all you, those that lay to see it, for all those not seen face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. When Paul interjects that 
or a may you. He's often either beginning a prayer request or sharing what he's already prayed for people. I kind of wonder what it was like being around Paul. You know, like he just, you talk to him and all of a sudden he's like in a prayer. But that's another story. But he just did this and prayer leads to love and love leads to prayer. You want to love someone, pray for them. Well, I preached on this, uh, I don't know, October, November, something like that from Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I'm just going to read these verses briefly. Paul makes this very clear. He, he thanks God for the Philippian people. He says, I thank God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. But then that leads to love. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. You're partakers of me with grace. If you go down to verse 8, God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And check this out. Now his love leads back to prayer. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. He just goes on. Right? It's this love leads to prayer, prayer to love. It's not a vicious cycle. It's a vivacious cycle. Right? A life-giving cycle. And how might you pray for someone you don't know well? Firstly, pray big, not shallow. We often pray band-aids, right? If we're honest, we often pray band-aids for people, right? Those just little things that just barely, you know, they, they just do the trick for now. Sometimes there's not real healing involved. Like, Lord, you know, I just, just pray that Susie and her folks kind of get along while they're here visiting, right? Or pray Grandma starts feeling better. Like, I'm not discouraging you necessarily. If you're going to pray, definitely pray that. But consider, really consider what Paul prays for people he doesn't even know. I mean, their hearts encouraged, knit together in love to reach the full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? You don't pray just for Susie and her parents to get along while they're here. You pray for God to, through Christ, reconcile them and you know, move them to a deeper relationship through Him. Like, that's the kind of thing we pray. Pray big, not shallow. Also, make prayer your struggle. When you pray for people you don't know, you've got to do this. Elsewhere, Paul asked for people to labor with him in prayer, to work with him in prayer. Here he calls it struggling. To struggle for people you don't know well, I find you've got to write down their names. That's just me. Well, I think it's for most people, though. You've got to write it down. Uh, you know, you've heard that phrase, out of sight, out of mind. If you don't know someone well, you don't see them much, chances are you're not going to pray for them. Jot down, type out the names, put them on a calendar if you must. I can actually give you the names of folks in our church. I'll leave out the phone numbers and addresses, don't worry. But I can give it to you. Just email me later. You're rarely going to get a spiritual high from that kind of thing, from that kind of prayer, because it's a struggle. It's a labor. But man, does it bear fruit in other people's lives. And in your own. Fourthly, what we see here is intentional follow-up. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Though I'm absent with you in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of the faith in Christ. Now, we usually use this phrase, I'm with you in spirit. I'll be with you in spirit. Right? Kind of half sincerely. Right? As sort of the spiritual cop-out when you can't be somewhere. I'll be with you in spirit. So what Christians say when they can't be there. 
But Paul believes this to the core. I can't get into it too much, but that where one part of the body of Christ is acting, the whole, the corporate body of Christ in full is truly being affected, including himself of which he's a part. The reverberations of it are felt. I admit I'm taking a little bit of an interpretive stretch here, but just think that you can't truly, can't truly care much about wanting to be present with people without really intentionally following up with them. Like Paul did. He does this here. He does this with uh, uh, most likely Epaphras. That's how he learns of their good order and firmness of faith in Christ. He didn't visit them. How might we be intentionally intentional about following up with people we don't know well? There's a couple ways. Resolve to follow up about what matters most. When Paul followed up, he rejoiced about what? Their firmness of faith in Christ. It was on display. And this is practical as well. If our concern is simply about the results of a sporting match, right, about someone who cares about this team or that team or how a child's recital went or other sort of passing matters, we can always rationalize, hey, that person will be fine if they don't hear from me. I mean, they're gonna, I mean it's, just a, it's just this, it's just that. Because it's passing. When we resolve to follow about what matters most, you know that person could receive some deep effect from it. God can use it powerfully. Second, just tip, listen well to make at least one mental follow-up note. One mental note, listen well to people. Nikki Van Rensburg in our church, uh, she was telling me this week that she tries to pick up on one thing in conversation with someone that she can follow up on later. If she doesn't know them well, she can follow up on that one thing. Right? You may be the only person asking how that thing is affecting their life. Think about that. You might be the only person. Just make a mental note of one thing you follow up with them about. And guys, I want us to see this. We're not going to have time for a second question. I know. You know, I'll blog about it later, as usual. <laughs> when in doubt, blog it out. In, in each of these things, though, in each of these, we have to see the purpose is Christ. Christ revealed, Christ pointed to, Christ more tangible, Christ formed in the other person. So I want to make a very simple but gut-riching challenge to you, and that's this. Before you leave this place this morning, before you leave here, prayerfully consider one specific person whom you don't know well and resolve to follow through with one of Paul's four ways to demonstrate love to them over this next week. Pick one. Resolve to love them in that way. And in doing so, reveal your source to them, who is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it's a challenge to love people, and yet you, through Paul, challenge us further to love people that maybe we don't even know well, particularly people in the body. And I just pray that you would give us your love through Christ, first of all. Lord, that we would consider the cross. Jesus, that we would consider your affliction for us when we think about being afflicted for others. When we consider speaking in others' lives. When we consider praying for others. When we consider following up with them. May your cross and your affliction for us be what drives us, what fuels us. 
But Lord, also help us resolve to do it this morning. It may seem like a small thing, a small act, but even the smallest stone can make a wave that grows across an ocean. And I pray that would be true of a demonstration of our love this week, this month, and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.